Genesis 39. Our text actually is chapters 39 and 40 together. I think they actually work together as a single story or section in this ongoing story of Joseph that began back in chapter 37. We had a bit of a shift of focus to Judah in the last chapter, but Moses brings us back to to Joseph and we begin to see what are the net effects of him being sold into slavery uh, and how it is that that God has not abandoned him. Honestly, I, I think that's something we need to hear. Because all too often as we go through life, and it seems as though we go through a variety of struggles, we begin to think that perhaps God's forgotten us, or that God somehow has abandoned us. We're left on our own as things are going from bad to worse. What we need to hear this morning is, no, God hasn't forsaken us. He hasn't left us. He's not left you. He's with you. He is Emmanuel, God with us. It's what this place in the Bible, I think, has for us. But in order to hear the message of God's word, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we come to you as your people this morning, and we desire to hear the word of the Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, come. Come and open our eyes of faith that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel, so that we might be your followers and we might have hope. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read chapter 39, and we'll pick up chapter 40 as we work our way through the text. So chapter 39, beginning in verse 1. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there, was there in the house, She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, 
the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Thus far, God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So have you ever been around one of those relentlessly positive people who, who whenever something is bad is happening, they will, they will reflect for a moment and they say, well, you know, it, it really could be worse. I happen to be married to one of those people. And it's wonderful. I'm very, very thankful for it. Because on the one hand, you know, this optimistic attitude, it, it's so helpful for me to, to be able to evaluate things and to say, well, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen, and, and this thing isn't that thing. So, hey, you know, it really could be worse. The situation isn't that bad. For, for a linear thinker, thinker like me who, who looks down the road and sees all the bad events that could happen, it's very helpful. It's optimistic. But on the other hand, sometimes, and this is not my wife, sometimes saying it could be worse, it, it, it could minimize the difficulty of the pain of the present. As though we're saying like, like Rocky in Rocky Three. remember that movie when he's getting the snot beat out of him by Clubber Lang and he's saying, you ain't so bad, you ain't nothing. As he's getting the snot knocked out of him, that, that's how we can be, acting as though what we're going through in some kind of stoic way isn't so bad, but inside we're actually hurting. Inside, we're actually in denial. Or we say that to someone else and we end up denying their pain and denying their struggle. What do we do? I mean, what, what do you do when things go from bad to worse? Do you put on the stiff upper lip? And you say, well, it's not so bad. Or do you just shut down? This event after event after event that seems negative and adverse seems to be piling one on top of the other. Do you, do you just shut down? And because the waves are washing over you, you come to that kind of catatonic place where you just stop feeling. You become numb. Or when things go from bad to worse, do you end up just running, fleeing? You may run emotionally, you run physically. But in that fight or flight response, you flee because you're not a fighter, you're a lover, and I can't handle this anymore. I'm out of here. Or maybe you're the fighter, and so you end up responding when things go from bad to worse with anger and rage and malice and cynicism and bitterness and the world's against me. I don't know how you respond, how you process things when things go from bad to worse, but for for those who profess to trust in God, there, there is another way to respond. And that's hope. Hope, because we believe ultimately that God has not abandoned us. That in fact, God is 
with us. Not in some kind of, I hope so, kind of pie in the sky kind of way, but really in indeed the God whom we have professed to believe is actually with us. He's in the pit with us. He's not forsaken us. He's not abandoned you. Now, that may not explain in the moment why things are going from bad to worse. But if we hope in God, if we hope in this God who's come to us in Jesus Christ, then Jesus will remind us over and again that he is with us with his presence and power and grace. I think that's why this section of the Bible's here. Not just to tell us something about Joseph, but to remind you and me when things are going from bad to worse, We've not been forgotten. We've not been forsaken. We've not been abandoned. I mean, certainly that's the case for Joseph, isn't it? We, we've had this interlude uh, in Genesis 38 when we're introduced to Judah as one of the two main actors in this section that will last to the end of this first book of the Bible. But then Moses brings the attention back to Joseph. And he reminds us in the very first words that he says in chapter 39 that things have gone from bad to worse for Joseph because he once knew freedom. And now he knows slavery. He's gone from freedom to slavery. Look at verse 1 again. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Now we're apt to speed by this first verse. And in many ways, it's a summary, isn't it? It's picking back up the thread left off from chapter 37 in case we got distracted with Judah. So, so Moses is reorienting us to Joseph's story. But, but in that first verse, you are reminded of things that are true about Joseph. Namely, he was the favored son of a powerful man in Palestine. Joseph had worn that, that symbol of authority coat that showed that though he was the 11th born, his father was treating him as the firstborn son, as the favored son. He was even sent out as an overseer over his brothers, the one who had all authority. He was free in his father's love, favored by him, but he was also favored by God. Remember, he had visions and dreams that told him that he was going to rule, rule over his brothers, rule ultimately over his father, his mother. They were going to bow down before him. He was one who has had freedom and success and blessing. And then he was sold into slavery. And then he was brought down to Egypt. Twice that language of being brought down is used in the first verse. That's true geographically, but it's also true emotionally. He was brought down. And he was sold to this Potiphar, the captain of the guard, a racial other Someone who had no kin connection to him, an Egyptian. Friends, let's not romanticize what's going on in Joseph's life. This is evil. Slavery, is, it's not the way that God intended the world to be. And from Genesis on, God, God intended his people to live in harmony. Slavery is the result of sin. Gospel, the gospel of Jesus ultimately promises freedom. And it always subverts slavery whether it's in the period of Joseph, whether it's in the first century, whether it's today as slavery occurs globally. God's purpose is always one of freedom from beginning to end. And so this is evil. And Joseph never talks about it otherwise. We're going to see this in Genesis chapter 45 when he finally confronts his brothers. He reminds them that he was the brother whom you sold 
into slavery in Egypt. And then at the very end of the book, in the, in the verse that many of us know and perhaps summarizes much of what happens in Genesis, Joseph says, you meant it for evil. Yes, God meant it for good, but you meant it for evil. And so this is bad, but it could get worse. As Joseph has gone from freedom to slavery, it could get worse, and in fact will get worse. Because not only does Joseph go from freedom to slavery, he also goes from success to jail. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, chapter 39, verse 2, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. He mastered, the master his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Pay attention to that phrase. It's going to show up three more times. Put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So Joseph is sold to Potiphar, and he makes the best of his situation. He serves Potiphar, and he's wildly successful. Even Potiphar recognizes this. Everything Joseph touches seems to turn to gold. And so, so Potiphar decides to make Joseph his chief steward. All that he has, four times repeated, placed under Joseph's stewardship. So this one who was sold into slavery... Who, who didn't know where he might end up, ends up in Potiphar's house, ends up wildly successful, everything under his care. Joseph's made the best of a bad situation. He's incredibly successful. He's the steward of, the most, of the most power, one of the most powerful men in all of Egypt. Things are going so well, aren't they? Until, until Potiphar's wife takes an interest in him. Until she starts demanding that he have sex with her. Uh, until she would refuse to take no for an answer. Of course, Joseph repeatedly refuses, doesn't he? And in verse 8, he says, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It's striking in contrast to Judah, isn't it? Judah was sensual and senseless, and particularly sexually, he took what he wanted, and he didn't care who it, hurt it, who it hurt. He took the Canaanite woman. He ultimately took Tamar, though unawares. He was completely thoughtless about what it did to others or how God might have thought about it. Not Joseph. Here you see his character. He was very concerned about how it would affect others. Not just Potiphar's wife, but also Potiphar. And very concerned about how what God would think about this. How can I sin against my God? And yet, though he's a better man than, than Judah, Mrs. Potiphar doesn't give up. And finally, she seizes him by the, by the garment in verse 13. And, and so he flees. He, he leaves the garment in her hand, verse 13 tells you. It's always a garment or a coat in Joseph's story. And he flees out of the house. And so verse 14, she called the men of her house and said to them, See, he, that is my husband, has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. 
he came into line with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. She claims that Joseph tried to rape her. And she repeats the same story to her husband. What is Potiphar to do? I, I think there's a little bit of a needle from, from Mrs. Potiphar to Mr. Potiphar here. The, this servant that he has brought among us. And she says, this is the way your servant treated me. He's upset. I think he's upset about the entire situation. Um, I, he's upset with his wife. He's upset with Joseph. He's upset that he's going to have to make a choice. Does he keep his chief steward? the man under whom he has placed everything and, and who actually is doing a great job. He's being blessed, Potiphar is, through Joseph. Or does he side with his wife and avoid shaming her in the midst of Egyptian society? Well, we know what happens. Uh, he sides with his wife. He does the only thing really he can do. He throws Joseph into jail. But I think Potiphar's attitude is is shown in where Joseph goes to jail. We see it in verse 20. Joseph master, Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. That's not where foreign slaves go. Foreign slaves would have been put to hard labor in this period in Egypt, or they would have been executed if they committed a crime, particularly this kind of crime. Notice Joseph doesn't end up there. He ends up basically in a minimum security prison. A, a prison that Potiphar actually oversees. It's likely that this prison is just next door or a pit underneath his house, kind of a basement area. This is something he oversees. Still, nobody wants to be in jail, especially if you're a foreigner, especially if you don't belong. Joseph's gone from freedom to slavery. No one in his family knows where he is. And he's gone from success, where, where at least he was known, to now he's being left in jail. And he's left in jail for, for a while. And indeed, if you think things can't go from bad to worse, they can. Joseph's gone from freedom to slavery. He's gone from success to jail. And we see in the rest of chapter 40 that he's gone from being sought out to being forgotten. Chapter 40, verse 1, actually tells you that, that he's been in jail some time, right? Verse 1, chapter 40, verse 1, some time after this. We're not sure how long some time is. And yet, even while he's in jail, Joseph still knows some measure of success. The jailkeeper, the end of chapter 39, tells you, uh, is so pleased with Joseph that he puts everything under his care. Whatever there was to be done, Joseph is the one to do it. But eventually, as, as Joseph's caring for the prisoners and those who are in the, in the prison work, he runs across two men, two political prisoners of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker. Now, Joseph's in jail, as we know, he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything to deserve being sold into slavery. He didn't do anything to deserve being thrown into jail. But these guys did. Both the cupbearer and the, the baker they had done something worthy of being in jail. Verse 1, chapter 40, verse 1 tells you that. Uh, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. 
And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. So these men deserved to be in jail. And one night, these two men, the cupbearer and the baker, they both have dreams. The cupbearer has a dream uh, concerning three branches with grapes, and he sees himself taking the grapes and squeezing them into the cup and handing the cup to Pharaoh. When the cupbearer tells Joseph the dream, he says, good news, three days you'll be restored back to the role you had in Pharaoh's administration. Uh, the baker is so excited about this, uh, he tells his dream, this basket full of bread, and the birds are, are eating out of the three baskets that he's carrying. Joseph says, bad news for you, in three days, your head will be lifted off of you. You'll be executed. But in the midst of interpreting these dreams, Joseph says to the, the cupbearer in verse 13, he says, uh, uh, excuse me, verse 14, only remember me, chapter 40, verse 14, only remember me when it is well with you. Please do to me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Don't, don't forget me. Don't forget me. I didn't do anything wrong. I shouldn't have been sold into slavery. That was bad, but it's gone to worse. I've been thrown in jail. I haven't done anything wrong. You've got to work on the outside for me. Remember me. Does he remember him? No. No, actually, the end of the chapter ends this way. Yet the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, chapter 40, verse 23, but forgot him. How long? First words of chapter 41, after two whole years. Two whole years, Joseph's been forgotten. Each day he's thinking, surely the cupbearer is going to remember me. Surely he's going, to, he's going to talk to Pharaoh and he's going to set me free. There's no one more trusted than the cupbearer. Because of, of testing the wine to make sure that Pharaoh's not going to be poisoned, surely he'll remember. And days go, and weeks go, and months go, 24 months. He's gone from being sought out to being forgotten. So here's the situation. Joseph had been free. He was, he was the favorite son of a powerful man. But now, as things have gone from bad to worse, he's... He's really in the worst possible position a Hebrew can be. He's a forgotten man in a foreign prison where he will probably rot and die. No one knows where he is. No one cares where he is. He is helpless. His situation is hopeless. Some of you know what it's like to be in those places of being helpless and hopeless. You know what it is to, when things go from bad to worse or when the worst thing you possibly can imagine happens to you. You know what that's like. You, you know what it's like when it seems as though your family knows a, a rapid succession of deaths. Pastorally, we sometimes talk about deaths coming in threes. Well, sometimes you experience that all in your family. You lose a, a sibling, and then a spouse, and then a parent, or a child. And it seems as though the deaths are just being piled up, and the body blows are just too much. Or, or you lose your job. 
in, in the downturn in your particular sector of the economy. And, and as you're looking for a job, you, you find that your skills don't match up to what the marketplace is, is wanting. And, and meanwhile, the creditors are coming. Your mortgage is coming due. The, the credit card companies, they're coming after you because you've maxed them out trying to survive, and you can't survive anymore. And in the midst of all that, your daughter comes, who's not yet married, and tells you that she's pregnant. And it feels as those things are going from bad to worse to the worst thing yet. Or, or you're in that in-between generation like so many of us are where your parents, aging parents, are dealing with cancer. Or they're dealing with memory loss or Alzheimer's or whatever it may be. And then you have your adult children who have lost their way, perhaps going through a divorce or some other situation that they're dealing with. And you're caught and you feel as though you can't manage emotionally because you're in this in-between spot where things are going from bad to worse. How do you process that? What do you do with that? I mean, do, do you just sit there numb? Do you run away? Do you flare out in anger? You want to fight? What God wants you to do is he wants you to pay attention. He wants you to pay attention in the midst of things going from bad to worse because he's there. That, that's really the, the leitmotif that works its way through these two chapters. As things are going from bad to worse for Joseph, over and again, we are told that God is with him. Did you see it? Chapter 39, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Um, uh, verse 5, chapter 39, verse 5, uh, from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. Chapter 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The end of the chapter, verse 23. Uh, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. Even chapter 40, verse 8. They said to him, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Over and over again, in the midst of things going from bad to worse, the Bible tells you that the Lord was with Joseph. That God was blessing Joseph and others through Joseph. That, that God was giving Joseph just the words to say at just the moment he need, needed them. And what God wants you to know is that's not unique to Joseph. No, he's with you too. He's with you too when things are going from bad to worse to the worst thing you can possibly imagine. The Lord is with you. He's with you to bless you. He's with you in his steadfast love. He has not abandoned you. He is holding you fast. I mean, think about how God's people heard these words when Moses first read them to them. Likely somewhere along the pathway of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, or perhaps they're on the plains of Moab getting ready to go into the promised land. God's people, Israel, hear these words read to them to be sure they they would have known them from an oral tradition, perhaps, but Moses had put them in an oral, uh, a, an orderly account, and, and now he's gotten to this place, and they're hearing how Joseph's situation had gone from bad to worse. Why does this give them hope that, that God was with Joseph in all of this? 
Why does it, why does it minister to their hearts? Well, what are they carrying with them? Do you remember? What do God's people have with them as they're going through the wilderness for 40 years? They have Joseph's bones. Yeah, at the end of chapter 50, we're going to see it. Joseph charges the children of Israel, when God brings you up from Egypt, take my bones with you. And so for 40 years, they've been wandering around the wilderness with Joseph's bones as, as they've gone on this, this painful journey, as things have gone from bad to worse, as they've gone from Egypt to the Red Sea and from the Red Sea to famine and thirst, and when they've gone from the golden calf to the failure of the first generation to wandering for 40 years, they're still carrying Joseph's bones. And now God's saying, look at Joseph's bones and remember, just as I was with Joseph as things were going from bad to worse, I'm with you. And the proof is, you've got Joseph's bones. I'm going to bring you to the promised land. I've not left you. I've not forsaken you. Things may be going from bad to worse, and the worst thing you could possibly imagine happening has happened to you, but I am the Lord your God, and I am with you. But he's not just saying this to us, or to them, to Israel. No, Moses is actually saying this to us. Here in 2021, first Sunday of May. He's saying this to you. And he's telling you that as things are going from bad to worse in your life, he's not forgotten you. Even if the worst thing that you can possibly imagine happening to you is happening to you now, God's still with you. How do I know that? I know that because at the heart of the gospel is God's presence with you. But not just in a general way. No, at the heart of the gospel is that our, we put our trust in Jesus, whom God has called, what? Emmanuel. God with us. And from the beginning of the gospel to the end of the gospel, we are reminded that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word who is God himself, he dwelt among his people. This one whom the angels called Emmanuel, he dwelt among his people. And he came to do something, not just to sympathize with us, but to actually bear the worst thing that we really could possibly imagine. Because as bad as the thing is that you possibly could imagine that you might call the worst thing, there's a worse thing yet. Here's the worst thing in reality. The worst thing is, is that you deserve the judicial wrath of God. You have sinned against a holy God, and God rightfully holds judicial wrath against you, which if you do not do something about that, that curse and wrath that hangs over you, you will be at the end of your life when you die cast out into utter darkness where there's gnashing of teeth, where the presence of God is there, not to abandon you, but to bring the judgment of God so that you know torment all of eternity. That, my friend, is the worst thing you can possibly imagine. And Jesus did something about it. This one who is Emmanuel was hung on a cross and bore the judicial wrath of God. All of that hell that you deserve, he took it. He bore it upon himself. That which would have taken you an eternity to endure. He endured it in a moment and said, it is finished. It's finished. That worst thing you could possibly imagine, done. And so when we come to Jesus, at the very heart of this gospel, as things are going from bad to worse, and the worst thing we could possibly imagine is happening to us, we are reminded that this Jesus is not just God with us, 
He's also God for us. He's God for us. The cross tells us so. But in those times when we struggle to grasp hold of this message, to truly believe it in our hearts, not just our heads, but our hearts, God does something else for us. He actually brings us to this table. It may be that my words this morning are going in one air and out the other. But here in a moment, you're going to have a cracker in your hand, some bread in your hand. You're going to have some juice. And you're going to hear me say, as surely as that bread touches your lips, so surely Christ died for you. His body was broken for you. As surely as that cup touches your lips, so surely Christ's blood was shed for you. What does that tell you? The worst thing that could possibly happen to you is done. It's done. And that means then, my friend, as things go from bad to worse, you can run to Jesus Christ. Not just as one who sympathizes with you, who knows what the human condition is, who's experienced what you've experienced as God with you, but you can run to him as the one who is for you. He bore your worst, and the best is yet to come. So my friend, hope in him. Hope in him. Because he's with you. Your God is, as things go from bad to worse. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we bless you. We bless you for this gospel, this good news that reminds us that you won't let us go. Even as sorrow and sadness and difficulty surround us, You've not forsaken us. You've not abandoned us. You continue to come with a word of hope for us because you are the God who's with us and you are the God who is for us. So Lord, remind us of these things as we prepare to come to your table this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll find our hymn of preparation in your worship booklets, the, the gospel song, He Will Hold Me Fast. We remain seated to sing, but on the last verse, those who are serving the table will come forward to prepare. Let's sing.